0: The sermon that you are about to hear is from our contribution to the Taleo Online Bible School. This session is the second part of our teaching on the book of Hebrews. I was honored to be invited to teach in the inaugural semester of Taleo, and this teaching is one of 5 original lessons we contributed to their school. If you are interested in a grace-centered online program, visit them at taleobibleschool.com. And now, Here is today's lesson, Hearts Established by Grace, Part 2. Hello friends, welcome to Hearts Established by Grace, Studies in Hebrews, Part 2. And I hope that you enjoyed the journey through Part 1 and the ways in which Jesus is superior to all things that preceded Him. I want to remind you as we start Part 2 that this letter to the Hebrews is written to a people who have an understanding of the Mosaic economy, an understanding of Jewish history, and who have been framed in a bedrock of temple worship, priesthoods, lambs, blood, feast days, sabbath days. They have the history of their people. They have a connection, bloodline connection, back to Abraham through circumcision. And then the things being laid out in the letter to the the Hebrews are laid out to those who have all of those roots, but who have claimed Christ. And having claimed Christ, the author of the book of Hebrews wants to make sure that their hearts are established by grace, not by anything else. In fact, the great contrast in Hebrews 13 is hearts established by grace versus those who are obsessed with foods. Well, those who are obsessed with foods was the Jewish dietary law. And that's sort of a catch-all for your heart can be established by grace or your heart can try to be established in something else. Truth be told, I don't think your heart can be established in anything else. And that's the argument of the book of Hebrews, that there is a superiority to Jesus in Jesus to everything else. And there's nothing to go back to. When you get it proper in that lens from that framework on it becomes easier to interpret the difficult to handle passages from the book of hebrews we'll deal with some of those today some of those passages that have caused people to believe you can backslide or lose your salvation or that there's no way to come home if you leave and that's understandably those are difficult until you understand the purpose of this book and how he's writing to a hebrew people not to go back um, it's been said, I've heard it said, and I don't disagree with this, that the the book of Hebrews is the least studied epistle in the American church. Um, I don't doubt that at all. And I would say not just the American church, but probably the church at large. And maybe the reason for that is not only that it is listed as Hebrews, and we know we're not, and so maybe we think it's to someone else, But I think because it's so full of Old Testament imagery that I think in some ways it can feel like it's an Old Testament book when we don't insert Jesus in his proper place. The reason that the book was so vital in its hour, I think, is the reason in some ways that it's so vital in our hour. It was vital in its hour because people were abandoning the exclusivity of Jesus to go back to Moses. They were abandoning the invisibleness of Jesus to go back to the visibleness of an old covenant, or as I like to say it, they were abandoning the substance of Christ to go back to the shadow of the old covenant. And in reality, anytime you do that, when you go back to the shadows of Sabbath days and feast days and dietary laws, and external laws. In place of the invisible Holy Spirit, you are in effect romancing a shadow. You are married to the substance, but you're going back and and dating the shadow. I like to use as an example, uh, I have my wife whom I love very much and she loves me and we have a very personal relationship as you would with your spouse or as you do with your spouse. When I'm away from my wife, I can look at a picture of her and think of her in fondness. That's as good as I can do when I'm away from her. But when we, we are together in the same room, I'm not looking at the picture. I'm done romancing the shadow of my wife. I'm going to romance the substance of my wife. And that is a, an example I like to use in Christianity. You can romance the shadow things of the law But why would you do that as long as the substance is here? It's like Jesus was once asked by the Pharisees, why do John's disciples fast and your disciples don't? And Jesus said, because you don't fast as long as the bridegroom's with you. Well, hey man, the bridegroom's with us. And so we don't don't look at the externals as a way of achieving favor or righteousness. We have the, shat, the substance, the invisibleness, uh, but very visible to us by faith of who Jesus is. There were, we're going to cover some highlights from the book of Hebrews in this part, uh, understanding that there's no way that we can really ever cover this book quickly. Um, I, it's really difficult to cover it slowly. It's, it's just a book of such immense treasure that uh, to uncover it takes I guess a lifetime as far as I'm concerned, what we will try to do is hit some highlights of places I think our hearts should be established. Uh, and, and I'll walk through some of those in a moment. I just want to give you one little precursor thought to try to add to this little introduction for part two and that was at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews which was late 60s maybe mid 60s AD, uh, there were seven Jewish synagogues in the city of Rome And by the time of the writing of Hebrews, several, at least maybe three of them, had converted to Christianity. Um, And this was causing massive ripples among the Jewish populace of the second half of the first century. Uh, Some of the unrest that was going on between Judaism and the Roman Empire had to be, because of this surfacing of the way, Uh, this sect of Jews who thought that they had found their Messiah, a man named Jesus. We call them Christians, Christianity. Now that was a derogatory term in its day. Uh, Those who think they are one with Christ. Uh, We know we are, so, you know, proudly we might call ourselves that. I'm not crazy about the titles myself. I'm a disciple of Jesus. You can call me whatever you want to call me. And they called them whatever they wanted to call them. But what we can't lose in this is that the reason the book of Hebrews was crucial is because people were going back to Judaism because there was a legal protection from the penalty of the Roman Empire for claiming Judaism, but there was no such protection for claiming Christ or Christianity. In other words, Judaism was legal, Christianity was quickly illegal. And therefore, the book of Hebrews was vital to them in the same way it's vital to us in that we should not substitute our loyalties to the Lord Jesus Christ for anything else. And I think this letter needs read over and over again in the modern church because in some ways we're threatening to sell our loyalties to politics, to governments, to ideologies, um, to to a thousand and one other things, to business interests. And I think we, we need a warning again that there's nothing to go back to. Just as there were seven synagogues in that day, and several converted to Christianity, some stayed there, never went back to Judaism. Uh, there, there are also sevens, the Jewish number for completion. So I thought it appropriate to pick seven spots in the Book of Hebrews that I want to highlight in this ser- this set of the, of teaching to try and show you a few things that I believe help establish our hearts in grace. Let me give you a couple of ideas of why I'm laying it out this way. Number one is that I believe that if our hearts are established by grace, we will not be carried about with strange and various doctrines. We will have our hearts solid in what he thinks about us and who we are. And once we accomplish that, once that is achieved, then all of the peripherals, all the things about who we are in Christ begin to flourish because our hearts are in the right place. It's like building a foundation without the foundation laid. You build on sand, the whole house falls. We, some cases we have a Christianity built on faulty foundations, foundations of fear, foundations of guilt. Some people are only following the Lord because they feel bad about their sin. Some people are only following the Lord because they're scared they're going to go to hell. Some people are only following the Lord because they believe there's a rapture that's going to take them out of this. And if they miss it, then they've missed out on the Lord. And for whatever reasons, you can call it carrot in front of the donkey. You can call it fear-based or escapism, for whatever reason, we're serving him for so many other things. And I believe if our hearts are established in those things, then there's gonna be fear on the peripheral and the underpinnings are exhausted and then we're gonna collapse. And that's why we see the, the way, the, the wayside littered with the bones of people who quote unquote, tried to live for God and, had, and quit. And so I think we're, we're made for more than this. Uh, and so the, so the first thing to really lay out is that that's why we're trying to establish hearts and grace. And the second thing is the book of Hebrews contains several moments, seven of which I will highlight, and I think there are a lot more. But for brevity's sake and for that nice, complete Hebrew number of seven, we're going to bring up seven spots left to right in the book of Hebrews that if Hebrews did not exist, we would be the lesser. There would be something about our faith that had a massive gap in its theological understanding. So we can tip our cap to the book of Hebrews in these seven areas, seven areas that I believe our hearts are better established in grace because we have the book of Hebrews in these seven moments that give us something that solidifies our walk with the Lord. Uh, without further delay, let's you jump into them, and I want to remind you we're going to work left to right, and I also want to remind you that in no way does this exhaust all that the book of Hebrews has to offer. I'll say it again at the end, but I'll say it up front. I encourage you to examine to to take a deep dive into the book of Hebrews and enjoy the ride. There are We've already shown you how Jesus rides superior to all the other things, that's one lens. And then today, the lens is to look at those highlights. I encourage you to find more than seven. Find every one of them you can find that have the real heartbeat of what it means to have your heart established by grace, and in many cases, There's a lot we wouldn't know if not for the book of Hebrews. All right. I begin with our hearts are established in grace by several things highlighted in the book of Hebrews. And a heart is established because Hebrews highlights number one, inheritance. The New Testament loves to call us children of God, family of God, sons and daughters of God. We make a big deal of the first moment Jesus ever calls someone daughter, whenever the woman with the issue of blood is called daughter. We make a big deal, as we should, of Jesus telling the story of the man, the father who had two sons, the youngest who wasted his substance on riotous living, the oldest who worked in the yard, and and the lost son come home. Your brother who was lost is found, he was dead, he's alive. we make issue of these son and daughter statements because they are familial and they speak in a deep, deep way to some deep water in our soul that stretches all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God doesn't just establish a colony of humans Um, that aren't related and then tells them to go get along. No, God establishes humanity on family terms. He makes a man from his own self. He breathes his life into him and then he pulls a woman from his side and then has them procreate. And the earth is populated with family. It's fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and husbands and wives. And any Uh, understanding that you have of God that doesn't put familial or family at the top of it I dare say is an improper understanding of God you really want to get an understanding of who he is and how he works look at him first as father the book of Hebrews helps establish this idea of inheritance and when I say inheritance, you say what what's inheritance have to do with sons and daughters because traditionally the inheritance goes to family members, not to non family members. So when the book of Hebrews starts talking about inheritance, it's letting you know there's a sonship to be had. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 He has become so much better than the angels as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And then verse 14 Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will? Inherit salvation. Notice the connection that Hebrews makes early and often that Jesus, the Son, receives an inheritance and that all of us who are saved also receive said inheritance. The book of Hebrews wants to lay out the idea that what you receive, you receive as an inheritance, not due to Moses or Abraham or the tribe of Israel that you're from. Remember, we're reading, we're writing to Jews. And they have always believed that their their goodness was based on inheritance. And it was the inheritance they could stretch through their bloodline, through their genealogical record, all the way back to Abraham. But Hebrews out of the gate says, no more. The inheritance is not because of your bloodline, not because of your father Abraham. It is because of Jesus he is the true inheritor, and then you are a part of that inheritance because of who Jesus is. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Notice you were told at the end of chapter 1 that he was going to minister to those who that the angels minister to those who will inherit salvation, and then you're told there in two ten that he's bringing many sons to glory. Uh, I believe you're you're in an old covenant environment when you hear people talk about the fact that someday when you get to heaven, uh, you're going to hear him say, "Enter in, thou good and faithful servant, into the joys of your Lord." I believe enter into the good you good and faithful servant was a message to Israel. That's why the book of Matthew tells it. And I believe it was a message to people who come up under a servant mentality. And the best they could hope for was to go home as servants who please their master. But Jesus came to bring you home in a whole other way. He didn't come to bring you home as good servants. He come to bring you home as sons. He's not bringing a bunch of servants to glory. He's bringing a bunch of sons to glory. John 1 says, For as many as believe in His name, He has given them the right or the authority to call themselves the sons of God, the children of God. And why sons? Because sons receive an inheritance. If you can become convinced that you're a son, that you belong in the family of God, that you are part of this family by no works of your own, but simply because of Jesus. Once you can settle your heart and establish your heart in that, then you are prepared for whatever the Holy Spirit unveils to you about your, uh, your gift, your rights of inheritance under the new covenant. So thank God for Hebrews, which lays out the case from the very beginning of what we need to understand, that our hearts are established by grace when we realize that we have an inheritance, that we are sons, and that whatever we receive, we receive because of Him. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 1 that the promises of God are in Christ, and they are yes, and they are amen. There are no more promises available to you under the old covenant based upon your performance. There are no longer any promises under the old covenant based upon your nationality, the color of your skin, the language that you speak, who your father is. But now all of the promises of God are available through Christ Jesus. And Paul said we no longer know him according to the flesh, which means It has nothing to do with the flesh. It has nothing to do with skin color, place you were born, who your mama is, how much money you have, how smart you are. It's not a gospel just for rich people, and it's not a gospel just for poor people. It's not a gospel for the white man or the black man. It's not a gospel for the American. It's not a gospel for anything other than receiving Jesus and then taking your inheritance through who he is. All the other formulas, have passed away. And if Jesus is superior, then all the other methods of of achieving your established heart of who you are in him have passed away outside of inheritance because of who you are in Christ. All right. Our hearts are also established in grace because Hebrews highlights number two, rest. More than any other passage, I believe, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4 lays out for us a true understanding of rest. Now, technically, and, and understanding, and I know you know this, but understanding that the the writers did not break these things into chapters and verses. And so understanding that they did not, in reality, it's good to have chapter 3 to kind of lead you into chapter 4, because chapter 3 talks about the faithful son, Jesus, over the servant, Moses. And it talks about how faithful that he was and uh, and that he was... He was established in in rest, and he established his people in faith. But then when you get into chapter 4, it begins to talk about the promise of rest, how the children of Israel were always looking for a physical land. They were always believing for a place of rest. And then in verse 8, it says this, If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Now, the Joshua here is, of course, the Joshua from the Old Testament, although some of your translations might actually say Jesus, because Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Old Hebrew word for Joshua, Yeshua. And so, uh, that's caused some people some confusion. But in Hebrews 4, it's talking about that Old Testament character Joshua. And the reason why he's important here is because Joshua is the successor to Moses. And he's the leader of the children of Israel. It takes them across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And here they've been waiting on promises. They've been waiting on promise, waiting on promise. What, what's, what's our promise? Land. What's our promise? physical inheritance. What's our promise? Nations of the earth. They can stretch out all the way back to the promise God made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And then when they get into the promised land, they don't Joshua doesn't stop talking about rest. There's a rest that remains for the people of God. The book of Hebrews doesn't actually quote Joshua from saying anything, and we don't have a moment where he says There's another rest. But we also see late in the book of Joshua, say around 22, that he doesn't rest. He continues to press forward because there was no, the physical land did not provide the rest that calmed the soul of Israel. They had always been looking for a promised land, but the book of Hebrews establishes that it was not a promised land, it was a promised rest. And he says, There remains a rest for the people of God, verse 10 for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So verse 10 describes to you the promised land of the new covenant. You see the, the, the rest that you and I are going to receive is not heaven. Heaven will be great. It has to be great. Spirit of the Lord's there, but that's not the rest promised to us. He verse 10 told you the rest. Rest is when you cease from your works, in the same way that God ceased from his works he he created and he ceased and when we cease from our own ability to create our own ability to do then we enter into the rest he promised you know what else rest is not rest is not a piece of geographical property rest is not national Israel receiving their land and and making sure no one else gets to touch their borders or has any land in their borders There are no land promises in the New Testament. If you'll notice, not one New Testament writer, Peter, James, John, Paul, none of the New Testament writers give any prophecy about the land. In fact, Paul even expands the Genesis prophecy in which God told Abraham that he would would, uh, inherit the land and bless the nations. Paul says in the book of Romans that he will inherit the world. And he talks about us. So we know it's not, we're going to own all the property on the planet, but rather we're going to be able to recognize that wherever we set our foot, we can rest because our rest is not contingent on laws. Our rest is not contingent on national borders or title deeds. Our rest is contingent on understanding how the work got finished. We rest, remember this, when we, when he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So that tells me this, how did God cease from his works? The work was finished. The work was finished. He could rest. So when we enter into that finished work, we rest as long as we don't see it is finished, we're going to work on finishing it. But the moment we realize that it is finished, we enter into his rest. So one of the things our hearts are established in thank you. Book of Hebrews is that we are established in rest. Here's another one. Here's the third one from Hebrews chapters five and six, our hearts are established because Hebrews highlights number three, our spiritual maturity in Hebrews chapter five. There are qualifications for high priesthood. There is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then the writer has a sort of preacher moment where he's writing and says, you know, there's a lot more I'd like to say to you, but I anticipate that you're not able to handle it. You should be able to handle it because you ought to be teaching others, but you're struggling with that. And then he he chides them a little bit about being spiritually immature. And thank you, book of Hebrews, that teaches us once and for all, if we'll pay attention, what true spiritual maturity is. And I hope this is going to establish your heart and grace. Your heart will be established by the knowledge that your spiritual maturity has nothing to do with your effort, with your works, with how much you fast, with how much you give, with how much you do. It has something else entirely. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness because he's a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is fully mature, those who by reason of use or practice have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Look at that. According to Hebrews 5, you are spiritually mature when you understand the word of righteousness. And you've practiced knowing the difference between good and evil. You don't need to practice if the difference between good and evil is written on stones. You just read the stones. You have to practice when it's written on your heart. When you have to learn how to trust the voice of the Spirit in your life. When you have to fail occasionally, then get back up and then move forward. That's spiritual practice. And as you practice, you walk into maturity. And this is why we have to allow people to practice. We have to allow people to fail without kicking them while they're down. We have to understand that the process of growing up spiritually is not not making mistakes, it's making mistakes and then changing. That's spiritual maturity. And knowing that you're not righteous based upon how many mistakes you do or do not make, but you're righteous based upon His finished work. Now, we move forward into the next chapter because the thought is not finished. Look at 6.1. This is the next verse. Therefore, therefore, pointing backwards, since maturity is having your senses exercised, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let's go on to perfection. That's the word maturity. Here it is. Let's go on to spiritual maturity. How do we go on to spiritual maturity? We have to lay some stuff down. Here's what we got to lay down. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, the word from, a preposition that should have been translated by, they're both prepositions, not laying again the foundation of repentance by dead works and faith toward God. Let me stop there for a moment. What this verse tells us is if you wanna go on into spiritual maturity, then we gotta lay some stuff down, some stuff that used to be very fundamental to our understanding and one of the very first things we started doing when we tried to live this thing is we started repenting by using works. We tried to show God we were serious by injecting works into our life. And the the book of Hebrews says, stop laying again a foundation of repenting by doing dead things. That's a spiritually immature way to live. You know what another one is? Faith toward God. How is faith towards God spiritually immature? Because you have a relationship with Jesus. Christ shows you what the Father looks like. God is cold and distant and ambiguous and who knows what that means Jesus is personal and a son and we move on into spiritual maturity because we move away from the generality of faith toward God verse 2 let's move on from the doctrine of baptisms of laying on of hands of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment oh my goodness The doctrines of baptisms are washings, ceremonial washings, constant external washings, washings of foods, washings of sacrifices, the belief that you could purify your flesh by physical washings. He goes, get out of the mode of believing that you can change your spirit, man, by external baptisms. Get out of the mode of laying on of hands. Laying on of hands doesn't mean don't lay your hands on the sick. The the New Testament even talks about laying your hands on the sick. It's the practice of believing that you could transfer your sins onto the head of a lamb. And one, in our other, one of our other courses here, we talked about Jesus, the Lamb of God, how you put your hands and effectively put your sins into the body of that animal. That's a Jewish practice. That's, it's not just Jewish, it's other religions of the world. And the author of the book of Hebrews goes, it's spiritually immature to think that you could put your sins into a lamb, that by transference you could take care of that issue. And then also resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The, the, the constant haggling of what resurrection looked like what resurrection is, when the resurrection is, how the resurrection is. The author of the book of Hebrews thought it was spiritually immature to keep arguing about this. This is an interesting one, I'll admit, and this is also one of the internal reasons I don't believe Paul wrote this book, because Paul spends extensive time in his epistles on the resurrection of the dead. He has the most systematic, New Testament systematic theology on resurrection of the dead of any author, and yet Hebrews 6, 2, tells the spirit, that spiritual immaturity is concentrating on that resurrection of the dead. And so it's an interesting argument as to whether this author would have thought Paul was spiritually immature. But I think the point here is, is focusing too much on the unknown rather than the known. And that's a sign of a spiritual immaturity when we focus so much on the unknown rather than the known. And I can't tell you the amount of time I've seen Christians spend... On trying to identify where demons come from and whether angels are in charge of dimensions and and all kinds of unknown stuff, and I think that's a part of this spiritual maturity that Hebrews talks about. Is to go leave alone the stuff you can't deal too strongly in. I don't think it means we have to lay the theology of resurrection down, but based on the context of the statement, I think it's an important one. And then, man. This needs shouted from the housetops. If you're spiritually immature, you're probably always talking about eternal judgment. Man, is that ever true? Even people who don't know the Lord, the only thing they think they know about Christianity is eternal judgment. Who's going to hell? What happens when you get there? How do you get there? Um, the world is more informed on hell than we give them credit for. And I would say they're more misinformed on hell because of the misinformation they've been projected to them on the ch- by the church and by literature. And the author of Hebrews would have told them, it's spiritual immaturity sit here and talk about eternal judgment. Let's move on. And I think that if we'll allow our hearts to be established by the grace of the spiritual maturity laid out of the book of Hebrews, I think we'll be ready to move on from some of the elementary principles and we'll be ready to move into deeper waters. And as you move through the book of Hebrews, you start to see what some of those deeper waters are. Now, then 7 rolls into a change of the priesthood. I don't make an emphasis, point of emphasis, um, based on chapter 7, but I would say a good sidebar for you is to go investigate that chapter 7, I think, talks about the tithe under the New Testament. The fact that there's been a change of the priesthood means there's been a change of the law. And I think Hebrews 7 makes a compelling argument that the tithe has been wrapped up in the fact that the tithe was for a natural priesthood. So since there's not a natural priesthood, there there must be of necessity a change of that law. And uh, this is the closest thing Hebrews gets to any kind of giving. I don't highlight it as something to establish your heart in because it's not the New Testament's best teaching on the subject. Um, The best teaching on the subject, I think, would be Paul's teaching from Galatians 6, or his teaching from the Corinthian letters on giving. Uh, and, And so go see what Paul has to say about that, I think for a better reference of it, but Hebrews does do some peripheral work on it. However, Hebrews is the exclusive place where we land for this fourth highlighted heart established in grace because of number four, the teaching on the new covenant. Nowhere, not even in the apostle Paul's teachings in Galatians 4, and believe you me, his Galatians 4 stuff on the new covenant is pretty good. Uh, in fact, his Galatians is fantastic on the New Covenant. His systematic theology of that righteousness, that great exchange, is, is laid out very well in 2 Corinthians as well, and it's also laid out very well in Romans. But no one does what Hebrews 8 does. Hebrews 8 reaches back into Jeremiah 31. It grabs hold of the text from Jeremiah 31 where God prophesied that there was a day coming when he would cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's the only place in the Old Testament the phrase New Covenant is used. The author of the book of Hebrews lays out in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, which tells us that there was a problem with the Old Covenant. Now, I used to say the problem with the Old Covenant was us. And while I will not disagree that we are a problem, I will also say that that isn't brought up. In Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8's about to tell you that there were faults with the Old Covenant, and here's what the New Covenant's gonna do, and never one time does it say the fault. The old covenant is you bunch of sinners. Um, no. There were faults with the old covenant, soft spots, and they were replaced by four distinct features in the new covenant. I call these the four corners of the covenant. I have a side series on those four corners of the covenant where I give a subtitle for each of those four corners. Now, I don't want to reteach teach or re-preach that, but I do believe it's necessary to have a fundamental understanding that Hebrews establishes your heart in grace. In that, it lets you know that there are four corners to your covenant that you need to realize belong to you. Let's read them. Hebrews chapter 8, verse... Let's go ahead and read on, on through. Finding fault with them. It's technically that Greek word is... Verse 8 is finding fault with it. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now on the screen, I want to give you the four things that the new covenant gives you. And if it gives you these four, it does so because these were the faults in the old covenant. Verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's numbers one and number two. The first one, I'll put my law in the minds and in the heart. Number two, I will be their God and they will be my people. I'll put these on the screen. The first thing that God gives us under the new covenant is the internalization of the Holy Spirit, what I call direction. You know what the old covenant lacked? The Old Covenant was not internal. The Old Covenant was external. Your heart is established in the fact that the Holy Spirit doesn't live outside of you, urging you on, prodding you on, and poking you on. The Holy Spirit is not driving you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. He has written his laws in your heart and in your mind, inside of every one of us. The internalization, the direction of the Holy Spirit is the reason why I'm not afraid to release you into grace. Because the first cornerstone of the covenant, the thing that the old covenant lacked, was a constant internalization. The second one, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I call this security. The second cornerstone of the covenant is that you are eternally secure in him. You have an everlasting consolation. You've been given the everlasting spirit, and you are underneath the everlasting blood of the new covenant. All of those things are laid out for you uh, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 specifically. The everlasting aspect is that he will be your God, and you will be his people, no ifs, ands, or buts. In the Old Testament, oftentimes God would say, I will be your people if you do this. If you do this, I will do this. But the promise under the new covenant is there's no ifs, ands, or buts. We are his people. He is our God. The thing the old covenant lacked was you having security that you always belong to him no matter what. The new covenant fixed that. Here's two more that the new covenant fixes in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 8. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Here's the third feature, the third corner of the new covenant, and I call it authority, because the text says, no man shall say, know the Lord, all men shall know me. There's no more spiritual hierarchy under the new covenant. You don't have to go to a priest in order to know God. You don't have to go to a pastor in order to know God. You don't have to go to a mediator in order to receive from God because there is no hierarchy. There was no such thing under the old covenant of a guy coming to Moses and going, Hey, I heard from God. Here's what we ought to do. If you think you would like a theocracy, think again. A theocracy would be one man coming to you telling you he heard from God. That's old covenant. You don't want to live in that world. Believe me, you don't want to live in that world. You want to live in the world where you get to hear from God. The hierarchy is gone in the spiritual realm of He hears from God for me. No, you don't sit in churches and go, well, I don't get to hear from God. The pastor hears from God. No, you can hear the voice of the Holy Holy Spirit, the voice of the Father, because the third corner of the covenant is that every man gets to know me. I call that authority. I call that access. The old covenant had a problem with it. The new covenant does not. Fourthly was, I will be merciful to their unrighteous deeds and their sins and their lawless deeds, their iniquities will I remember no more. Fourth corner of the covenant is forgiveness. You have been forgiven of all of your sins. This is a bedrock of the, old, of the new covenant. The old covenant, we had to keep offering lambs. We had to keep offering bullocks, keep offering sacrifices. And every year on the day of atonement, you had to offer another sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 says the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin because the problem is, is that the blood of a bull and a goat didn't take away your sin consciousness. You knew that a lamb dying on your behalf was not taking care of your sin issue. It was a lamb. It wasn't you. And that consciousness caused you to be perpetually conscious of sin. And that hardened your heart. And the fact that you didn't think you were perpetually forgiven causes you nothing but problems. The old covenant couldn't solve that. He didn't have a perfect sacrifice. And then came Jesus, whose blood once for all offered for all of us the sacrifice for sin so that those of us who are being sanctified are forever taken care of because of the blood of Jesus. This is a judicial fact that your sins have been counted in Jesus so that Jesus' righteousness will be counted in you. So, Hebrews 8 promises us four corners of a new covenant. Four things the old covenant failed at. Direction inside, internal direction Security, eternally secure. Spiritual authority and access to the Father. And forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Book of Hebrews, for establishing our hearts in that. Also, our hearts are established because of the highlight the Book of Hebrews gives on number five, the Spirit of Grace. I take you to the 10th chapter of Hebrews in a very popular passage of Scripture and one that has caused a lot of problems for people. Um, th- this reminds me real quick, um, and this is one that I missed that I, I don't want to miss. Um, way back in chapter 6 when I told you about spiritual maturity uh, and, and I, we took you up to the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, there's a passage in verse 4 and 5 and 6 that has caused a lot of problems. Let me read those real quick because chapter 6 and chapter 10 contain two of the scariest moments in Hebrews, and I want to try to take care of them both at the same time. In Hebrews 6, 4, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall again, if they fall away, to renew them again. The word again there is progressive in the Greek. It's impossible to renew them again and again to repentance since they crucify again and again for themselves, the son of God and put him to an open shame. In other words, there's no going back to Moses. Once you've come in under the blood of Jesus, you've been enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've partaken of the Holy spirit. You've tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. If you go back, and they and if they fall away they go again and again repenting again and again sacrificing it's a cycle you've got to move on from the again and the again and the again and the again. And so Hebrews six is not about people that sin after they get saved, not being able to, to come to Jesus. It's about going back again and again to the old sacrificial system is an example of putting Christ to an open shame. Cause what you're really saying is Jesus didn't die enough for me. I'm going to kill another lamb and another lamb and another lamb. And the author said, what you're really doing is putting the finished work on the on at highlight and going, this doesn't work this stuff. Every lamb you kill, you're going, Jesus didn't work. Jesus didn't work. A uh, going back again and again and again to the old way is putting Christ to an open shame. Now that brings me to, number t- to, the, to the fifth one, which is the highlighting of the spirit of grace. And I want to deal with another really troublesome passage for some in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. What's Hebrews 10 saying? It's as easy once you get the context of this right, which is Jesus is better than all the other stuff and there's nothing to go back to. And if that be the case, if you sin willfully after you've received the truth, by sinning willfully, that's going back to the sacrificial system of the earlier part of chapter 10, which is bloods of bulls and goats. If you go back to that, You trample the Son of God underfoot, you count the blood of the covenant as as if it were a common thing, and you insult the spirit of grace. What Hebrews provides us is that great phrase, spirit of grace. Everything outside of that is trampling on the blood of Jesus. You can't go back to works, you can't go back to performance, you can't go back to the stuff in the natural realm it's to trample over the blood of Jesus and who he is. That's what it would take to go back to those other things. These scriptures ought not scare you unless you're trying to go back to a sacrificial system for your own salvation and you might say, well, I we can't even do that. That wouldn't, how could we go back to killing lambs? Agreed, but maybe you're going back to believing you can do something in order to achieve your righteousness. In which case, you're trampling on over the son of God afresh. Don't go romance the shadow. Let's move on. Our hearts are established because the book of Hebrews highlights number six, godly discipline. No other New Testament passage gives us this good stuff on godly discipline like Hebrews 12. Another passage that troubles some people because they're not reading it through the lens of someone who understands the disciplinarian code of the Old Testament and then can move that knowledge into the code of the New Testament. Let's look at it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, not servants. Servants get the, just a living tar beat out of them. But what about sons? My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves He chastens, or corrects, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? If you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate. You're not a son. In other words, if you're not disciplined by the Holy Spirit, you're not a son. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he does it for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Look at that. There's the key. True spiritual godly discipline is God correcting you for your profit. I call this preparatory discipline versus punitive discipline. You don't give a servant preparatory discipline. You give a servant punitive discipline. He messed up, he gets punished. But you give a son preparatory discipline. Uh, I like to use a sports analogy. If a team messes up, if a football team plays on the weekend and they mess a play up and it costs them a touchdown, maybe they lose the game. When they get to practice on Monday, it doesn't do a lot of good to punish them for the loss because all that's going to do is that doesn't help them. Now they're just going to do it again next week and they're going to lose again. They need to know what they did wrong. So the discipline that happens on a football program or any sport is really a discipline in preparation, not a discipline in punishment. It's to prepare you for the scenario you're going to go through. I don't know how God does this for each person and we're not God, we don't, we don't have the answers to that. What we do know is that we need to view God as being able to prepare us for whatever we're going to go through in the future because that's the chastening of a dad for his own. Verse 11, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So whatever you're going through and you believe the Holy Spirit has put you in this situation, look at this as a preparation by the Holy Spirit for what tomorrow holds, not a punishment for what yesterday held. Let me say that again. Christ has already paid for everything you've done. What God is doing through the discipline of the Holy Spirit is preparing you for everything you could do. The preparation is for who you could be, not punishment for what you've done not punishment for who you are. And if you can start to view it that way, then you will start to view your discipline as if you're a son. Otherwise, you're viewing your discipline as if you're a servant, and you're better than that. Thank God for the book of Hebrews that does that for us. There's one more. Because of the highlighting of the book of Hebrews, and this is one of my favorites of all of these, our hearts are established in grace because Hebrews highlights number seven, our current possession And to do that, I go to Hebrews chapter 12, just a little bit farther down from our discipline passage, and I show you verses 18 to 24. Here's where you are not versus where you are. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest. That's doom and gloom. In fact, the word darkness is literally the Greek word for gloom there's no blackness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Look at that. You are not at a mountain you can touch. You are not at a mountain where you can hear an audible voice. You are not at gloom and doom. All of these things are physical. All of these things are Sinai. All of these things are old covenant for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Look at where you are not. You are not at a place that's supposed to scare you to death. If your Christianity demands the sound of the trumpet, the voice of words, everything physical, everything emotional, everything being touched, watch out. You might be at a place that, you're not, that you don't belong. But here's where you are. This is our current possession. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Look at that. You're at heavenly Jerusalem. What's the book of Revelation called heavenly Jerusalem? New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. You might say, well, no, that's out in the future. Well, Jesus says to John, you want to see the lamb's bride? jean yeah. I want to see what she looks like. He shows him a city coming down from God out of heaven. Who's the lamb's bride? The church. What's the church look like in Revelation? New Jerusalem. Hebrews 12 says, You're there. You're on that mountain. This is your current possession. Now I want to show you everything you get. Not everything you're going to get. I want to show you everything you get. City of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all to the spirits of just men made perfect. Let me stop right there at the judge of all for a second. You want God to be the judge. You know why? Because you want to judge if you know justice is on your side. And let me tell you something. Because your sins have been counted in Jesus and his righteousness has been counted in you, there's a judgment in your past. Therefore, you want the judge on your mountain because he's going to rule in your favor. Don't look at the judge as a bad thing. You only look at the judge as a bad thing if you're guilty. You're not guilty. You're at the right mountain. If you were at the other mountain, you'd be in trouble. The judge would be on the other mountain. But you're at the mountain of God. Spirits of just men made perfect. 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. To the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. In Hebrews 8 it told you there's gonna be a new covenant of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In Hebrews 12, it tells you that Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant and that you're at that mountain right now and that the blood of sprinkling is speaking better things than the blood of Abel. What was the blood of Abel screaming? Bible tells us that God told Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. He put a mark on Cain. Cain carried that with him. Now Hebrews says the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. I believe because the blood of Abel screams out for vengeance. Blood for blood, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But you're not at that mountain. You're at a new mountain. You're at a mountain where it's not, he hits me, I hit him back. You're at a mountain where the blood is not screaming out from the earth, avenge me. Jesus' blood is screaming, avenged. I've paid the way. Thank you, book of Hebrews. Current possession, where, where am I? Where are you? On the mountain of God. And man, that's good news. Look look left to right, look at 13.9 again. Don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. It's good that the heart be established by grace. That's where we are. Of all the things Hebrews has been highlighting, in part one we brought out how Jesus was superior to. Here in part two we've brought out all the spots, seven of them, and oh, not all, but seven of them, of where Hebrews does what no other book does so well. Establish our hearts by grace. Once that happens, we're never again going to be infatuated with the natural realm, with the foods and the drinks. That's just an example to a Jewish audience to go, the stuff you can touch won't mean as much to you now that your heart has been established by grace. Let's look at the final word. This is a good way to close. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, by the way, there's your security, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and forever. Once your hearts are established by grace, look at verse 21, you're gonna do every good work in His will. This idea that if you can establish people in grace, they'll quit working for the Lord, that's crazy. People that quit, walking this out after they come to the message of grace were looking for a way out not just of religion they were looking for a way out of this whole thing and they have then used grace as an excuse the reality is is if your heart's actually established in grace if you have the doctrine of grace cross your mind I don't know where you'll end up but when your heart's established in grace every good work will spring forth out of you I think it's why John said we knew those who aren't of us because they didn't stay with us. I don't think John meant if he's changed churches, you must not be saved. I think what John meant was longevity will show you if people's hearts are established in grace. I mean, if you plant a flower or a tree in the ground, it looks really good for a few days, maybe even a few weeks. But if it's roots don't go down, it dies, but it takes a while to figure that out. And I think sometimes we don't know if people's hearts are established in grace because we haven't seen longevity, but just wait, watch the seasons change. Watch the fruit come out you'll know if people's hearts are established by grace. Finally, his last verse is my last word to you of this this two, two video series. Hebrews 13, 25, grace be with you all. Amen. That's my prayer for you. Take this, consume it, wrestle with it, enjoy it. Grace be to you all. Amen.